Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that I was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may be present, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this toil, uh, for this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me, uh, most gracious and holy God, we ask this morning that we would find joy in Your words, that we would be formed by them, that we would delight in all that You have for us, and that as life becomes difficult we would know of the riches of your glory and the hope to come. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So, starting off, uh, yeah, you guys can take a seat. This is how you can tell it is the, the resident and not the head pastor. I forgot to tell you all to sit. Um, so, I want to start off this week by taking a peek sort of behind the curtain of sermon writing. I know we get that in the podcast weekly, uh, but it, it doesn't hurt to give you that. So a few weeks ago, I, I was praying that God would grant me some sort of inspiration to write this sermon that you're about to hear. I continued to pray for inspiration more and more as the weeks went on. And what I didn't realize at the time was that in writing a sermon about suffering and struggling, writer's block was the best possible inspiration. When I tell you that I started five different outlines with five different introductions, I'm not lying. I tried sports references. I tried a reference to Arrested Development. I tried talking about being a parent, but none of those things really carried the narrative of the sermon I was trying to write. Most nights, once my son's in bed, I spend some time with my wife, just talking through the day. Sometimes we watch a movie, something like that. Over the last two weeks, I haven't had much time for that at all. Nearly every night I've stayed up either working on homework or staring at my computer screen, attempting to write a sermon that just wouldn't flow. Yesterday, I sat down to attempt to finalize an idea that I really liked the day before. After three hours of staring at the screen, I realized that I hated the entire thing and started this sermon that you're about to hear right now. Uh, so over the course of the writing process, I read about martyrs, I read about pastors, I read about soccer teams, but all those ideas fell flat. And so around 4.30, I started writing again. But this time I stopped trying to think of some real-world example that I could tie into the suffering for Christ. Trying to find an analogy that worked and flowed with this text was ill-fated because I don't think anyone in this room needs an extended metaphor to explain suffering and struggling. We have all, in some way, experienced difficulties in life. To stand up here and attempt to explain hardship through some weird metaphor about how 
you know, my favorite soccer team played really well, even though they lost and the fans cheered for them. Or how Michael Bluth from Arrested Development continually does what's best for his family, even when it goes against what he wants, just didn't seem like the right approach. So rather than an extended pop culture reference, I want to share with you some of my thought process over the last few weeks and months, and then work from there to try and draw out meaning and application from our text this morning. So, quick intro for those of you who don't know. I'm currently working on my Masters of Divinity. I also work here at Liberty Collingswood part-time as a pastoral resident. Uh, in that role, I work with volunteer teams, and I oversee Liberty Youth. On top of that, I work in the admissions office at Rowan College at Berlin County. Beyond that, I have a two-year-old son with another on the way literally any time in the next two to three weeks. Uh, and so in a meeting with Jim at the beginning of October, he asked how I was. At that time, my team at RCBC was shorthanded as two of my three admissions counselors had taken new jobs at the same time. Additionally, we had a fall open house coming up, an event that I am the person of contact for. I was also working on my term papers. And I told Jim that I was okay, tired, but really looking forward to getting past October 23rd because I was sure that life would slow down after that. And I know I disavowed Arrested Development references like two minutes ago, but I can hear Ron Howard narrating that conversation now. As I tell Jim that, Ron Howard says, life in fact did not slow down, <laughs> right? There were more admissions events to run, new hires to train, volunteer Sunday forms to build, Liberty Youth events to plan. There were family obligations, there was sickness, there was homework, there was parenting, there was trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good friend, and the list goes on and on and on. And as I sat in my living room last night writing, I realized the way I was dealing with that suffering was not living in accordance with the scripture that I was trying to teach. We'll talk about this more in depth later, but essentially, by trying to tell you all to rejoice in your sufferings, while I was muddling through and just waiting for the break, complaining verbally and silently to anyone who would listen, I was attempting to put a beautiful coat of paint onto a tomb. So here's the truth. I'm not good at rejoicing in struggle and suffering. I'm not even good at rejoicing in inconvenience right now. But I'm finding that Jesus is someone who can be found at the very edge of what we can handle. And that he meets us when we need him most. So I would say for the sake of this morning that my definition of struggling and suffering in faith comes from that idea. Right? Struggling and suffering are when following Jesus forces us beyond the limits of ourselves. They're the times that we're reminded of how much we need a savior and how powerful our God is. And so from here, I wanna talk in four parts. When we struggle, how we struggle, how Jesus is with us, and why Jesus is worth it. So four parts, right? First part, when we struggle. So the first thing I really want to work through is a simple question on the surface, but that's, when do we struggle and suffer? And it's not often that Friedrich Nietzsche makes it into a sermon. Um, he is a pretty ardent uh, atheist of the 19th century. But his idea that to live is to suffer carries some weight for us. And I think it's fair to say there's always a struggle or some kind of suffering to be faced. Right? As we seek to follow after Jesus... This makes sense, right? There are parts of us that we might enjoy that can't make the journey behind him. Yes, we're made in the image and likeness of Christ, but sin has lodged itself 
deep within our very being. And that sin isn't something we can carry with us into the glory of God. With this in our mind, it makes sense to say that we struggle every single day against the things that hold us back. Our greed, our pride, our lust, our anger, our indifference to others. And living in the late modern West, I think there's definitely a push for authenticity that's not all bad. But this push oftentimes will tell us, just be you. Follow your heart. Do what you think is right. Or that famous Woody Allen quote, right? The heart wants what the heart wants. And unfortunately, I don't think that idea gets us where we need to go. Right? When I think this through to its logical end, and what, and what I just think is right, right, if I do that all the time and not struggle against that selfishness, I picture a scene from The Office where Stanley Hudson is being interviewed. And he says, it's like I used to tell my wife, I do not apologize unless I think I'm wrong. And if you don't like it, you can leave. And I say the same thing to my current wife, and I'll say the same to my next one too. Right? I know that example is a little bit silly, but it holds water. If we continually feed the sins that we're tempted to fall into, the hole gets deeper and deeper. Last week, we were at Liberty Youth, we were talking about Abimelech. And one of the questions was how this story leads us to think about our own sins. I challenged the guys in the group by telling them that it makes me realize I have just as much ability to commit evil as he did, or any other heinous villain throughout history. The idea was naturally challenged, but eventually we agreed that these great spirals into awful sin are more like slow descents fueled by indulgence at every step. If we're not giving, if we're not giving in to sin at every step, our only other option is to struggle against it. And I think uh, Ronald Rollheiser puts this idea really well. Um, so he recounts an interview with an old monk. I actually shared this with Liberty Youth last week. Uh, so if you are a guy from Liberty Youth, I'm sorry, you have to hear this twice. Uh, the quote goes like this. So, sitting with the saintly old man, I asked him, do you still wrestle with the devil, Father Makarios? The old monk reflected for a while, and then he replied, not any longer, my child. I've grown old now, and he's grown old with me. He doesn't have the strength. I wrestle with God. With God, exclaimed the astonished young writer. And you hope to win? I hope to lose, my child, replied the old ascetic. My bones remain with me still, and they continue to resist. Right? So this sin lives deep, and as we struggle, it can often feel like we're struggling against everything that is within us to follow Christ. And I want to do a quick thought experiment on this. Um, it'll only take a few seconds. If we could each take one sin in our life and think about it, think about one thing that pulls us away from Jesus to, to drive this point home. Now, I want you to think about what it looks like if you indulged it every day for a year. Five years. Ten. Give yourself a second. Think through that. And then on the flip side, what does that sin in your life look like if you struggle against it in the same way, right? And pray earnestly that it be destroyed every day for a year. Five years. Ten. Either way, I think in this experiment, we're thinking about struggle, right? You're either right now thinking about that first part where, or you're thinking about the second part where we're struggling against our sins every day for 10 years. And sometimes it might not get better that fast. 
Or on the flip side, you're thinking about the struggle that we can create by indulging ourselves every day for those 10 years. We're going to struggle either way. It's worth it to say, let's struggle for the sake of Christ. Um, And as we struggle with these sins internally, there's also external suffering to think about, right? And I would say this is also more a when question than an if question, right? Jesus promises suffering often, right? He tells his disciples, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. In the world, you're going to have trouble. Take up your cross and follow me, right? These things are are tough. Um, But through them, we can see that suffering is likely to come along as we proclaim Christ in the world and as we seek to follow after him. This flies in the face of Job's friends, but as it turns out, we're more likely to suffer when we're walking closely with Jesus. Um, Just a quick example of the 12 apostles, only John dies of old age. And that said, we get from Tertullian, an early church theologian, um, that he was meant to be martyred, but miraculously survived the attempt unscathed. So it's needless to say that the life of the 12 is not this type of name it and claim it, live your truth type of life that might be sold today. And while I'm going to say it's unlikely that anyone in this room is killed for their faith, we're going to suffer for it in ways that are consistent with our setting. The apostles and other early Christians were attacked by both super-religious Jews of their time and by pagans of their time for the same statement that Jesus is Lord. And this still has life today, right? Jim often talks about Christianity being a third way of living outside of the secular left and the secular right. And both tend to equally be offended by the true gospel, the gospel that says love outsiders, and the same gospel that says we need to submit every part of our identity to Jesus. And as we proclaim Christ to our friends on both the left and the right, we should expect pushback. We should expect things to get awkward because we aren't pushing Jesus as a nice add-on to their lives. We're pushing them as the foundation of everything. Jim, throughout this series, has said that Paul's message is that Christ is everything. He's not a coat of paint. He's a new foundation. In our culture, we can see how eager both the left and right are to vilify and ostracize anyone that dares step out of line with their ideals. How many celebrities have we seen either on the conservative or the liberal side? They become icons 10 years ago, right? This is the bastion of conservatism. This is the guy we want to talk about when we talk about progressivism. Only to be thrown out and vilified when their beliefs stopped lining up perfectly with what was considered the right way to be on the right or left, right? Oh, what do you mean you don't still think this? Or what do you mean you do still think this, right? In Jesus, we find a belief that isn't changing, every 10 years, every year, right? The message of Jesus stays the same. And this doesn't fit at all with what becomes an increasingly polarizing set of beliefs on the secular right and left. But at the same time, we can't just hide in Christ, right? Because he calls us to love the very people who ostracize and vilify us. As we get closer to Thanksgiving and Christmas, This might be small, but many of us will be reminded of this as we see our families. Raise your hand if you agree with every family member in your family about everything important in life, right? It's not going to happen. 
but we have a, an amazing opportunity to come into contact with them and to suffer for Christ in this, right? And I want to encourage us all right now. Love that cousin that gets way too political at dinner. Be selfless towards that uncle that just doesn't seem to get it. And you'll find Jesus there outside of yourself as you show love to them. So that's when we struggle. Let's look at how we struggle. So as we move into this second part, we've already determined that struggling and suffering, they come along whether we want it or not. So what do we do with that? There's a lot of ways to deal with suffering and struggle. And one that I touched on in my intro was my favorite wrong way to suffer. Just putting my head down and getting through. It's effective in the short term, right? If I need to get through a long day, I can just grit my teeth and push through. But what happens when day after day is difficult and the break doesn't come? Right, I'm reminded here when I think about my own way of suffering of the mid-2000s movie Click. Wow, that's not one you thought I would reference today. Wherein Adam Sandler stars as a guy who is given a remote that can control time and space. At one point, he discovers a fast-forward button that allows him to jump past boring, annoying, and difficult parts of life and allow his body to exist in a sort of autopilot function. Uh, and while it's great at the start, he begins to realize everything that he misses by checking out. His relationships fall apart. And by the time he's old, he has scarcely any memories made with his family and friends. My method of pushing through tends to bear the same results if I let it play out. Right? And it's not at all compatible with the kind of rejoicing that Paul's talking about. When I have my head down to push through, I can't see the things that are happening around me or above me. Even as I'm struggling to keep up with everything, God is still working, and Jesus is still Lord. If I'm sticking my head down, I can't see how hard my coworkers are working to deal with similar struggles. I can't see the way that my wife is struggling to make my life just a bit easier. I can't see the joy that my son gets when I come home after a long day. Right? We're meant to engage the, these, these hard times. Um, but going from there as well, there's plenty of ways to not deal with hardship, right? So if we need to look at a few more ways people have tried to deal with suffering, we can look back just a couple of years to the height of the COVID-19 pandemic to see that people also try to escape suffering rather than just push through, right? So just some quick stats for you. Substance abuse during COVID-19 went up 13%. Porn use jumped 12%. And while it's not as easy to track, there was a huge upswing in binge eating and other eating disorders during this time. And what does that tell us? It tells us it's really easy to turn to stuff when we're in a hard situation, right? Without a community, it's easy to wrap ourselves up in those safety blankets that make us feel good. But do they really fix the problem? No. Not at all. Leaning into addiction can feel good when we're suffering, but it's only going to lead us into new kinds of suffering, just like we sort of thought about a little bit ago. So I don't want to dwell on problematic ways to suffer. Um, let's, let's instead look at ways that we should suffer based on our passage in Colossians this morning. Paul tells the church in Colossae that he rejoices in his sufferings for their sake because of the mystery of Christ in them, and the hope of glory. So Paul, who is a missionary, 
is able to rejoice in his sufferings because he can see that God is working. He continues to press into and speak about the truth of what we have, the truth of Christ, because he understands the glory that awaits. We'll dive into this a little bit more in a bit, but what we have here gives us a good base to build some application from, right? So based on this passage, the first step to suffering is to try not to avoid it. Paul could have stopped being arrested had he stopped talking about Jesus. Just as most of the martyrs could have avoided their execution by renouncing Jesus. But we don't see that. We see them doubling down on the truth of Christ and refusing to stop following him at any point. As Christians, we're invited to keep following Jesus even when we know it will make our life harder for us. I think of David here, right? So when David is hiding out in the wilderness, he's been anointed king. Um, Saul doesn't take too kindly from it and uh, is attempting to kill him, right? So while David is on the run from Saul, how many opportunities does he have to kill his pursuer? I can think of at least three off the top of my head, and you all know that I was up late last night writing, so my, my quick thoughts are not there, right? But each time Saul's delivered into his hands, he shows mercy and followed the commands of God, right? He was promised the throne. It would have been excusable in the human mind to kill the old king and take the throne, but David chooses the path of God, even though it clashes with conventional wisdom and makes his life harder. So as we see opportunities to suffer and put ourselves last for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, we should lean into them. Talk to the person you know disagrees with you. Grab coffee with the person no one else wants to talk to. Make that meal for the family who's having a hard time right now. Ask a friend who you know is struggling how they're doing and plan to listen and pray for them. Take on some extra work for someone you know is burnt out. It's in embracing these moments of suffering that we can see Christ work and we get to participate meaningfully in his kingdom. So once we know that we have to embrace this suffering and we want to look for opportunities to put ourselves last, I think it goes without saying that the best way to deal with that resulting suffering is turning in toward Jesus. How do we do that? Well, I'm going to propose two very churchly answers, but they carry a lot of weight. The first one is prayer. Right? Last week, Omari, speaking on behalf of the prayer team, asked people to raise their hands if they've ever had a prayer answered. Every person in the room raised their hand. If we're struggling and we've seen prayers answered, let's dive into that. Let's tap into that power that we're given. Right? We should be praying during our struggles. We should be asking our friends and fellow believers to pray during our struggles, just as we should be praying for them and theirs. And we shouldn't just be praying for our struggles to end. We should be praying for us to truly see what Christ is doing through that suffering. Alongside prayer, let me offer that second churchly answer. Dive into scripture. Within the Bible, we find plenty of people who are hurting, but turn to God. Most of the Psalms are laments. But you know what? Those laments often end in praise. The word of God is one of the best ways to see God in our suffering. Um, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Pastor Tim Keller writes that our suffering has three purposes. Right? It can be to chastise us for our sins, like Jonah, 
being put in danger by the storm, prevent us from committing future sin, like Joseph being sold into slavery, or to lead a person to love God more ardently for himself alone and so discover the ultimate peace and freedom. In every one of those cases, I would argue that we can see the love of God and know that he is in control. Right? As we do this, as we lean into God and see the ways that he's in control, we're going to be amazed by the ways that he draws near to us. And as we're broken down in our suffering and dismantled, we're going to be amazed by the ways that he rebuilds, repairs, and creates something wonderful and new within us. Now, this isn't to say we should be smiling through our sufferings. It is totally normal to weep, to wince, to lament, to shout to God. Uh, Scott Flovin talked a few weeks ago about the importance of lamenting, and I would be foolish to say that there's no place for it, right? Scripture is full of laments. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that our laments shouldn't be the only words or the last words. To rejoice in our sufferings is to stick our heads up and through our tears, look around to see the ways in which God is working in us and calling us to work in the lives of others. So that's how we, when we suffer, how we suffer, and now as we're working in, how Jesus is with us. So we've talked through suffering, we've talked through how to suffer, um, and it's important to move into Jesus here because all of this becomes useless if Christ isn't united to us, right? Everything I just said is nothing more than a self-help book if we don't have Jesus with us, right? Prayer and seeking him is nothing more than another coping and escape mechanism. It would be doomed to fail if Christ isn't with us. But in our passage this morning, we see Paul talk about the energy that he has been given from Christ. We know that God dwells within us through the Holy Spirit, and Sinclair Ferguson points out that the same Holy Spirit that empowers us empowered Paul, and the same Holy Spirit that empowered Paul was the Spirit that hovered over the waters before creation. Right? This energy that he talks about is what allows him to rejoice in his sufferings and struggle against sin, but it doesn't end there. Christ isn't just with us because he invigorates us in our struggles. Christ identifies with us in our suffering. In just a few minutes, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed, right? And right there in the middle, we read that Jesus suffered under Pontius, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And then we'll say that he descended into hell. Right? We believe in a God who meets us in our sufferings because he himself suffered more than we can imagine. He doesn't simply throw laws and advice down from an ivory tower. He lives through our suffering with us, through the Holy Spirit, and he has physically endured all suffering through his incarnation and come out on top of it. It's through understanding the suffering of Jesus and the gift of his Holy Spirit that we can begin to understand that we don't go through suffering without the help and understanding of our Lord. So that's how Jesus is with us. But then, maybe even more importantly, how Jesus is worth it, right? I want to close today by talking about how Jesus is worth our sufferings, right? If Jesus is only with us and not worth our suffering, then he's a good friend, but not a good God, 
Let me say that one more time. If Jesus is with us in our suffering and isn't worth the end of it, he's a good friend, but he's not a good God. How not encouraging would it be if the scripture said, in this world you will have trouble, but I understand your sufferings and I wish you good luck. Hashtag, I get you. Right? That's not good news. Not at all. In Christ, we have a God who not only shares our sufferings, but is worth suffering for, right? Paul speaks in our passage this morning about the hope and riches of glory. It's the goal of guiding others to maturity in Christ and the riches of glory that he, that he suffers and struggles for. But he also realizes that his sufferings contribute to his own glorification. He gets to take part in those riches of glory, not just everyone else. Biblical scholar and priest, uh, Father Stephen DeYoung, speaks about the sufferings of Paul, and he relates them to our struggles when he says, despite the shipwrecks and the beatings and the persecution and the hatred and the mocking he took, Paul knew that for him to live was Christ and to die was gain. And so he didn't have to be afraid of anything or anyone. Anything anyone did to him would ultimately work for his benefit for his blessings and his glory. And blessings and glory that are eternal, over against sufferings that are temporary. Even if they go on for our whole lives here on the earth. So as we struggle and suffer, we have these same assurances that Paul has, right? And these assurances have been enough to power the church to act boldly throughout history. Even if our sufferings last our whole life, the glory that we endure is greater. Uh, so we talked briefly about martyrdom, and at this point as I'm talking about church history, I want to pause uh, because it seems appropriate here to think about just how many believers this has gone on through, right? They've believed the promises of Christ all the way to the grave. And in thinking about these martyrs, these people who have gone to the grave for Christ, I want to address those of you who may be skeptical of spiritual realities. I'm glad you're listening, I'm glad you're here, and I'm more than happy to talk to you about all this. Um, and, and if you were looking for something to convince you that Jesus is more than a story, a hoax, or a lie, then I'd advise you to look no farther than the plethora of believers who face down persecution from the time of Jesus until today. People who have died praising God. I would think that if they were unsure, or knew they were following a lie, they probably would have renounced their faith long before death, especially the kinds of death they faced, which I see some younger children in here, so we can talk about that later. Um, but these deaths were not, is there a fun death? Uh, these were not fun deaths, right, that they died. They could have backed down if they weren't sure. But we see them rejoicing until their last breath. And it was the hope of glory that kept them going through these times. Um, so if, if that's something you're not sure about, look to the church, look to the apostles, look to Jesus' own life. If this was a joke, nobody would still be doing it. But what does that glory that we hope for look like, right? So we've talked about the hope of glory, but what does it look like? What are we working towards? What is Christ pulling us towards? And as we get toward the end of this sermon, we should take a look toward the end of our Bibles we find that often ignored book, the Revelation of John. 
Um, weirdly enough, we've now spoken about this twice in like the last month, so maybe not so ignored anymore, right? When we spoke about this book with Liberty Youth about a month ago, Jim brought up the idea that every chapter of Revelation was another way of John saying, the good guy wins in the end. And I want to give us one passage to consider as this, come, uh, this passage is going to come from Revelation 21, uh, verses 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he, they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the promise that we have. That Christ wipes every tear, heals every ill, and as Tim Keller always used to say in his sermons, make every bad thing come untrue. This is the promise that we are transformed by. The promise that makes us able to rejoice in our sufferings. Care for others when it's hard. Proclaim the good news of Jesus to those who hate us. And in all of that, trample the head of the devil in doing so. So I encourage us all, lean into Christ. Love your neighbor, even when it hurts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.